You are listening to Odyssey, the podcast, history's other most awesome epic. This is episode number 12 in the series. Today's episode is titled Homecoming. And so welcome back, folks, and you are now listening to episode number 12 of Odyssey, the podcast. I am choosing to title this episode, Homecoming. So as you will recall, we left our boy Odysseus sound asleep on the shores of his own dear Ithaca, finally home after 20 long years away. As you'll recall, the Phaiakian ship and crew had arrived in the shores of Ithaca in a tiny little remote bay about an hour's walk away from the main palace in the middle of the night when Odysseus had been sound asleep. So they had very gently set him down on the sand beach, deposited his huge hoard of treasure beside him, and then sailed away. So our story opens now, ladies and gentlemen, in the morning when Odysseus rolls over, yawns, wakes up, and opens his eyes. And the first thing that Odysseus sees is that he does not recognize at all where he is. Ladies and gentlemen, after 20 years away, Odysseus did not even get the pleasure of a homecoming recognition that he had arrived back in Ithaca. Now, the reason why Odysseus didn't recognize Ithaca had everything to do with the goddess Athena. And Athena, watching Odysseus very carefully, had, right before our boy had woken up, well, Athena had actually cloaked the entire region in a thick coating of impenetrable mist or fog. Now, Athena wasn't just being playful or deliberately miserable with Odysseus. She actually had a very legitimate concern. Athena's fear was that Odysseus, if he woke up and recognized his own dear Ithaca, She feared that Odysseus would be so overwhelmed and overcome by homecoming emotions that he might do something foolish like leap up and joyously go running into town, throw himself into the palace, and announce to his wife, to his son, and to everybody else inside of the city that I'm back. And of course, that would have gone very, very badly indeed. Odysseus didn't know it. There was no way that he could have known. He had had no reliable intelligence reports on Ithaca for the past seven years. But we know, and Athena knows, that there are 108 suitors waiting in that palace, and if Odysseus blunders on in, those suitors will be more than happy to end his life then and there. And aside from 108 suitors, there are countless palace servants and slaves And their loyalties, whether they are to the suitors or to the former and long-gone king, well, Odysseus doesn't yet know that either. And so, Athena had decided to simply cover the entire area of Ithaca in fog and slow her boy Odysseus down until she had opportunity to check out his state of mind. And now Athena decided to approach Odysseus, and of course, Athena, not being able to ever resist had decided to disguise herself, this time as a young and friendly-looking shepherd boy. 
So the shepherd boy walked through the mist, smiled, and greeted Odysseus. And Odysseus, of course, not knowing where he was and possibly quite down on his luck, dropped to his knees and supplicated the shepherd. Please, help me and tell me, what is this place? Who lives in this country? What is this country called? And Athena, enjoying herself absolutely immensely in her shepherd disguise, replied as follows. Stranger, you must be some sort of a foreigner from distant parts, or else a fool, since you ask about this famous country. This is Ithaca! Now, folks, at this news... I know that if I have been away from home for 20 years, and my suspicion is it is the same for you, my listeners, if you had been away from home for 20 years, well, on hearing the good news that you actually were safely back on your own native shores, well, you might have for a moment, I would have for a moment, exhaled, let down my guard, and cheered out loud. But neither me nor any of you, my listeners, are Odysseus. Instead, ever cautious, ever crafty, ever wily Odysseus chose to launch into an elaborate lie, turning to the shepherd boy Athena and declaring, Ah, uh, oh yeah, Ithaca, I, I have heard of Ithaca, although I myself come from distant Crete. And then, folks... Odysseus, in full storytelling flight, launched into an incredibly long, elaborate, and epic tale, rivaling that that he told inside of his great wanderings to the Phaeacians, detailing in incredible details all of the wonderful, exciting, awesome adventures that had led him, this traveling man from Crete, to find himself now on a sand beach on the outskirts of the capital city of Ithaca. And, of course, it was at that moment that Athena recognized that her boy Odysseus fully had all of his wits about him. And so, she dropped her disguise as a shepherd, transformed herself back into a female deity, and then laughed out loud in sheer delight at her boy Odysseus's bullshit story. Oh my, Odysseus, you clever rascal! So duplicitous, so talented at lying. Even in your own country, you are unwilling to drop the tricks and the tales that you love from the bottom of your treacherous heart. But you failed to recognize me. I am Athena, the daughter of Zeus. And then, folks... Athena, on a bit of a roll herself, made a rather remarkable claim. And Odysseus, I, I have always been there, right beside you, during all of your troubles. As I am here, once again, right now. And I fear, ladies and gentlemen, that at this moment we listeners are going to need to pause to step outside of the story just for a moment and briefly consider Athena's claim. Her claim that, I have always been beside you during all of your troubles. And folks, 
I think that we all have to admit that Athena's claim is, well, problematic at best and, at worst, possibly even a bald-faced lie. And what we might want to ask the goddess of wisdom, were she to grace us with her presence right now, is something along the following lines. Oh, really, Athena, we might ask. You say that you have always been right there at your boy Odysseus's side during all of his troubles? So tell me, goddess, where were you in the Cyclops' cave, or with Aeolus's bag of wind, or possibly, goddess, where were you at the Lastragonian harbor of death, or on Circe's island, or with Scylla, or Charybdis, or in the island of the sun god's immortal cattle, or how about, goddess, where were you for the seven long years when your boy Odysseus was held captive by Calypso? Always by Odysseus's side during his troubles, you say? Well, respectfully, goddess, none of we listeners saw you. Now, folks, Odysseus, of course, standing right beside the deity, as opposed to me from what I hope is a safe distance, Odysseus didn't dare be quite so blunt with an Olympian deity. It is a difficult thing to rebuke a god or to question the credibility or the veracity of any god's claim but especially an Olympian god, who, of course, all have thin skins, huge egos, and hair-trigger tempers. And so, Odysseus, the master wordsmith, though he doubted Athena's claim of her perpetual being at his side, well, he chose his words in reply to that remarkable claim with some diplomatic care. Here's what he said. It, it is difficult, goddess, to know you, however perceptive a man might be, because, well, goddess, you are always changing your form. I, I know very well how gracious you were to me in the past, while we Greeks were fighting at Troy. But, goddess, since then I have never seen you, or ever noticed you coming aboard my ship to save me from any ordeal. I was left to wander in desperation until the gods finally ended my trials and brought me to the land of the Phaeacians. And folks, uh, upon hearing Odysseus's tactfully delivered correction of Athena's assertion, well, uh, the goddess, in a rather unapologetic and deific way, well, she actually backtracked a little bit on her claim. And she admitted that she had not, in fact, always been beside her boy Odysseus during the past ten years. And why not? Well, that was really simple. Ladies and gentlemen, inside of all of Homer, in the Iliad and inside of the Odyssey, well, we know and we have seen time and time again that Olympian domestic politics trump any deific concern that a god or a goddess might actually have for the welfare of any human being down here on Earth. And it was Olympian domestic politics which had kept Athena absent from her boy Odysseus's side throughout his entire ten years of great wanderings. Here is what she explained in her defense. 
Well, as for not coming to help you, Odysseus, I, I did not want to conflict with my father's brother, Poseidon, who held a grudge against you for blinding his son. Now, folks, how Odysseus felt about this particular rather lame explanation from the goddess of practical wisdom, he was bright enough and canny enough to recognize that moving forward, more than chastising or rebuking or offending Athena, he needed the goddess's help. And so the moment of tension passed, and Odysseus moved forward into the practical business of soliciting Athena's aid in planning his next steps. And the first thing that Odysseus required from Athena, of course, was some updated intelligence on Ithaca. And the thing that he wanted to hear more than anything else in the world was about his wife Penelope. And he needed to know, though he feared to hear it, whether his dear Penelope was still faithful Penelope. Was she still his wife? Was she still waiting for him to come home? Or had she declared her husband dead? and moved on to marrying some other man. And to Athena's credit, well, she didn't dissemble on this point. She immediately provided Odysseus with the good news. Odysseus, for three years, the suitors have taken over your palace, and they have been trying to win the hand of your wife. All of this time, Penelope, she has been pining away, longing for your return. And though she has made a promise to every man, and gives hope to all of them, her intentions, I can assure you, Odysseus, are very different. And folks, I think we can only imagine the level and the depth of Odysseus's relief. Because finally, 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 after ten long years of being constantly reminded and plagued by grim stories of faithless wives and adulterous wives and evil wives and murderous wives, well, finally, finally, Odysseus could put aside all of those grim tales and exhale. His Penelope remained as good as gold. And then, of course, Odysseus turned the conversation to his young son, the boy that he had barely seen before he had had to sail away to Troy. And Athena immediately assured Odysseus that Telemachus was safe, in fact, that he was right off at the moment in Sparta on a bit of a road trip, and that she had been keeping a very close and daily eye on the young man. And further, to Athena's eternal credit, I think, she had tactfully decided to not tell Dad just what a wuss and a mama's boy his son had turned into. I suppose Athena was still hoping that with any luck, her rescue mission and Telemachus's road trip to Pylos and to Sparta would have sufficiently put a backbone into the boy, enough that Dad, when he finally did meet his son, would not ever suspect anything at all. Okay, so that was the intel. Now it was time to come up with an action plan. And Athena and Odysseus decided that Odysseus was going to need to go into town and eventually make his way to the palace, reconnoiter, and then begin to come up with some sort of a tactic or strategy for how to defeat 108 suitors. And of course, to do this, Odysseus would have to be very careful not to be recognized. 
Because if any one of those 108 suitors saw him, well, their best strategy now, dug deep as they were into their plans, would be to summarily kill Odysseus before he had a chance to figure out any sort of a plan. So now, Athena declared, was the time for a disguise. And Athena came up with a brilliant one. Ladies and gentlemen, Athena transformed Odysseus into that most invisible of human beings, a homeless man. And her reasoning, of course, well, her reasoning was simple. Nobody ever takes the time to turn and notice, really notice, a homeless person, a street person, a panhandler, or any sort of beggar. They're the people that flit in and out of our lives without us even noticing that they're there. So Athena did her magic. Homer reports. She tapped Odysseus with her wand, and his handsome body withered up. His limbs, they became arthritic. Then she bleached out his hair, and she made his skin look old and wrinkled, and she dimmed his fine, bright eyes. Then she turned his clothes into a tattered cloak and a ragged tunic, dirty with soot. Finally, she gave him a walking stick and a filthy knapsack full of holes with a frayed shoulder strap. And then disguise in place, well, Athena provided specific instructions. Folks, she counseled Odysseus to not go right away to the palace of Ithaca. Instead, Athena suggested that Odysseus should first go to the hut of an old swineherd, a slave named Eumaeus. Now, I should actually take a moment and fill you in on the details of this swineherd named Eumaeus, because he's going to play a major role in the story moving forward. Folks, Homer informs us that Eumaeus, the swineherd slave, was a man of about Odysseus' own age. Now, Eumaeus had probably been purchased as a slave when he was just a young boy. Now, what we learned from Homer is that prior to being purchased and transformed into a swineherd slave, Eumaeus had actually been the son of a very powerful Mediterranean king and queen of an island kingdom named Cyrene. Now, apparently, the kingdom of Cyrene had come under some sort of an attack. And, of course, we know the kind of attack it could have come under because Odysseus and his crew already attacked the kingdom of Troy and then later attacked the kingdom of Ismarus. And in both those cases, they loaded their ships high with slaves. So, whatever the case, poor Eumaeus had one day seen his kingdom of Cyrene attacked by somebody. He had been captured, summarily loaded onto a ship, and then sold on the island kingdom of Ithaca. But in spite of that bitter backstory, Homer tells us that Eumaeus remained and was absolutely fearlessly loyal and devoted to the entire Laertes family line. So daily, Eumaeus grieved the loss of his master, Odysseus. And daily, Eumaeus worshipped from a respectful distance his master's wife, Penelope. And daily, Eumaeus doted on his master's son, the young boy Telemachus. In fact, Homer explains, Eumaeus had turned into a bit of a surrogate father for young Telemachus. And it makes perfectly good sense, folks, because while dad was gone, Telemachus was looking for some sort of a male role model, 
But all of the male Ithacan nobility, of course, they were off fighting and dying on the battlefields of Troy. So poor young Telemachus, with lots of time in his hands, had one day back when he was really young, bumped into Eumaeus, the swineherd slave, and that swineherd was the man who was now mentoring young Telemachus and doing his level best to act as a father figure in Odysseus's absence. And so, it made entirely good, sensible sense for Athena to direct Odysseus to the hut of the swineherd Eumaeus. And as Odysseus set off down the trail towards the swineherd's hut, Athena bade him a temporary goodbye. She explained that she had business to take care of in Pylos and Sparta. And the business she had to take care of, of course, was managing to ferry Telemachus safely home. And by that ambush and assassination plot, which was waiting for him in a boat right outside of Ithaca's harbour. And so, as Athena was thwarting Antinous's regicidal plans, Odysseus arrived at the front door of the swineherd Eumaeus's hut. Now, folks, if you'll indulge me in a tiny little aside, Homer stops to inform us that the swineherd Eumaeus was actually the swineherd-in-chief, if you will. And Eumaeus actually employed four additional slaves, plus four very fearsome hunting dogs, in order to guard, corral, and take care of a massive herd of pigs. Now, Homer explains that, regretfully, the massive herd of pigs was now down to only 360 pigs, to be precise. And apparently, ladies and gentlemen, the herd of pigs was diminishing at a rate of about one pig per day. It appeared as though the suitors had approximately one banquet per day, and at the current rate of usage of pigs, well, the entire island kingdom of Ithaca would be out of pigs in another calendar year. And of course, Homer goes on to inform us, what was happening to the pigs was equally happening to the cows, to the sheep, to the stores of grain, and to the barrels of wine. Folks, Ithaca was on the tipping point of irrecoverable economic disaster, all brought on by the suitors' gross violation of the Protocols of Xenia. But now back to our story. So Odysseus arrived at the front door of the swineherd Eumaeus's hut, banged on the door, and requested hospitality. And, of course, he immediately received it. In Eumaeus's words, One must honor guests, and foreigners, and strangers, even those who were poorer than oneself. Zeus, Zeus watches over beggars, and guests, and strangers. So what I have in my hut is small, but I give it gladly. And, ladies and gentlemen, there's no doubt that Odysseus would have noticed the irony. Right now, the very poorest and humblest slave on the island was providing absolutely flawless and first-rate Xenia to the island's king. But if you were to look at the island's king at this very moment, well, he looked, disguised as a homeless beggar, even poorer than the slave who was providing the Xenia. Well, the evening proceeded. 
First off, there was dinner and then something to drink, and then things turned to conversation. And it turned out that Eumaeus, aside from being a swineherd, was also a remarkably intelligent, articulate, and highly perceptive slave. And he offered his stranger guest a very detailed picture of what was happening inside of the Ithacan Great Hall. Of course, Eumaeus, the swineherd, was there on a daily basis, providing food to the 108 partying suitors, so he knew what was going on. Eumaeus also turned out to know which of these slaves still were loyal and hoping that Odysseus was not dead, and which of the slaves had turned their loyalty over to those 108 suitors. So the conversation went on for some time, with Eumaeus mainly talking and Odysseus taking careful mental notes. But eventually it was time for Eumaeus to turn and ask his stranger guest a few personal and prying questions of his own. Now tell me, sir, and tell me the truth. Where are you from? Where did your parents live? And on what boat or by how did you get here to Ithaca? And Odysseus, obliged to reply now that he had received flawless Xenia, turned and answered as follows. Very well. I will tell you the truth. I will tell you the entire truth. And then, folks, our boy Odysseus, he lied, launching into an absolutely first-class bullshit story, a story of so much detail, of so much action, of adventure, of intrigue, of pirates, of monsters, of treasures lost and found, that it rivaled anything that Odysseus had told to the Phaeacian court. It was a masterpiece, completely made up on the spot by our master storyteller Odysseus. And it finished with an intriguing little bit of bait. Near the end of the story, Odysseus launched into an alternate side story involving how he, the homeless beggar, had actually met Odysseus, and how he, the homeless beggar, knew from first-hand intelligence that Odysseus was currently alive was well and indeed was on his way home and would be to Ithaca very soon indeed. Well, once the story finally came to its dramatic, theatrical, and epic conclusion, the highly perceptive and intelligent slave Eumaeus, assessing this story, immediately recognized that it was a piece of fabrication and total bullshit. So he turned to the homeless beggar in his house and stated as much. Dear guest, your tales of woe are very moving, but they are pointless. And the part where you speak of Odysseus? Well, I do not believe a word of it. Why do you stoop to telling me such silly lies? Do not try to trick me or make nice to me with lies. I will be kind to you, old beggar. Not for your stories, but in fear of Zeus, the god of strangers. And because, old man, I feel pity for you. But, ladies and gentlemen, even after being chastised for his bundle of bullshit lies, well, the homeless beggar remained absolutely insistent on his final point, that Odysseus was alive, that Odysseus was well, and that Odysseus was currently on his way to the palace in Ithaca. And so, 
The evening's conversation remained friendly and very good-natured. With the homeless beggar insisting that Odysseus would be home and soon, and the faithful slave Eumaeus refusing to allow himself to get up his hopes that his master would ever return home. And so the night progressed, the two of them talking back and forth. But soon it was time for bed. And then, ladies and gentlemen, Homer provides us with a very poignant little moment. Homer explains to us that it was a particularly bitterly cold night in Ithaca. And so, one of the kings currently in that shepherd's hut, the king named Eumaeus, chose to sacrifice his only warm cloak, such that the other king in that hut, the homeless beggar, our boy Odysseus, would be certain of a comfortably warm night. And so the two kings, one a slave, one a homeless beggar, they drifted off to sleep together in a tiny little swineherd's hut. And so came to an end the first day of glorious homecoming of the king of Ithaca. Now, folks, as Odysseus was sleeping, Athena was busy safely ferrying Odysseus's son, Telemachus, back home to Ithaca. And she managed, through her deific superpowers, to navigate him safely around the ambush set up by Antinous and the other suitors. Now, once Telemachus was on shore of Ithaca, Athena carried on with further instructions. She warned the lad to not go directly back to the palace. But rather, Athena suggested, Telemachus should go to the hut of the faithful swineherd Eumaeus. Now, it's pretty obvious to us folks what Athena is doing. She is orchestrating a grand and theatrical father-son reunion. And what better place to have it than inside of the swineherd Eumaeus's hut? Because folks, if you'll recall, I told you, Telemachus was incredibly close to Eumaeus. In fact, so close that he refers to him as grandpa or uncle or papa, depending on which particular translation of the Odyssey you want to choose. So it was only natural that Telemachus, fresh and flush from his very first big overseas road trip, would actually want to sit down with his grandpa, his uncle, his papa, and fill him in on all the exciting details of that trip. And of course, Eumaeus, who knew that Telemachus was overseas and putting his life in peril, well, Eumaeus would be holding his breath and waiting, hopefully, for Telemachus to make it safely back home. And so, the shepherd's hut was the perfect place for the reunion. Biological dad was in the hut, disguised as a beggar, and surrogate dad was in the hut too. Well, Telemachus stepped ashore, hiked for a few hours, and early the next morning, just after Eumaeus and Odysseus had woken up from their pleasant night's sleep, Telemachus arrived and banged on the front door of the cottage. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I really wish at this point that I could report a joyous father-son reunion. But I fear that I cannot. Because here's what happened instead. Folks, 
when Telemachus stepped into the shepherd's hut, he quite instinctively and quite joyously ran, not into the arms of his father Odysseus, but instead into the arms of his surrogate father, Eumaeus. And Homer actually accounts what must have been a bitter sweet scene for our boy Odysseus. Eumaeus ran to his young master, kissed his face and his shining eyes, and Eumaeus wept, just as a father, when he sees his own dear son, his only dear son, his most precious boy, returned from foreign lands, might weep. Just so, the swineherd wrapped his arms around Telemachus and kissed him, as if Telemachus were returning from the dead. With tears in his eyes, he said, Telemachus, you have come back, sweet light of my eyes. I thought I would never see you again when you sailed to Pylos. Come in, come in, my dear child. Let me feast my eyes on you. And Telemachus had replied, Papa, yes, I will come in, Papa. I I came to see you here with my own eyes. And folks, it was only after that joyous father-slash-surrogate-father reunion that Telemachus even turned and noticed a homeless beggar sitting quietly in the corner of the cottage. Well, the homeless man immediately stood up and quite appropriately offered the hut's only good chair to the crown prince of Ithaca. And Telemachus did not for a minute forget his manners. Uh, Don't get up for me, stranger. I I can easily find somewhere else to sit. But tell me, Papa, where did this strange man come from, and who is he anyway? And so, Eumaeus had introduced Odysseus to Telemachus. Well, Eumaeus had actually introduced a homeless beggar, but the only person in the hut who knew any different was Odysseus himself. Well, the conversation wandered around for a little while, but eventually the conversation turned back to the suitors in the palace and to Penelope. And it turned out that the situation up at the palace had actually grown much worse since Telemachus had left on his road trip. It appeared as though the suitors assumed that Telemachus would not return, but would have been assassinated, and as a consequence, they had grown even more violent, more aggressive, and more insistent that Penelope choose to marry one of them, and very soon. Well, Telemachus worried. He knew that his mom would be wondering where he was. So Eumaeus had quite graciously offered to head up to the palace right away and to discreetly let Penelope know that Telemachus had made it safely home, had avoided any and all ambushes, and was currently staying at a safe distance in the swineherd's hut. And folks, that conveniently left our boy Odysseus and his son Telemachus finally all alone in the swineherd's hut, which meant It was now time for Athena to do her magic with disguises thing once again. So here's what happened. The front door of the hut seemed to be open. So Athena manifests herself in her deific form outside the front door. 
but she covered herself in a form of mist which allowed Odysseus to see her, but Telemachus to see absolutely nothing at all. And then Athena made a get-out-here-right-away-Odysseus gesture with her hand. Well, we don't know what excuse the homeless beggar made to leave the cottage. It was likely something as simple and innocuous as, excuse me, i got to step outside and take a piss. But the moment that Odysseus was outside of the cottage, Athena, using her magic wand, transformed her boy Odysseus from homeless beggar back into her very best gilded version of him possible. And then, Odysseus, dad, stepped back into the shepherd's hut. But folks, once again, I fear I have to tell you that Odysseus's longed-for father-son reunion scene failed to unfold as Odysseus had no doubt imagined it. And here's why. Because Telemachus, seeing the glorious god-like man who stepped into the cottage, who seconds earlier had stepped out of the cottage as a homeless beggar? Well, Telemachus made the logical assumption that the homeless beggar had actually been a god in disguise and that that god had come down to the simple shepherd's hut to test if the laws and protocols of Xenia were being properly followed in that hut. And so Telemachus, doing the intelligent thing, dropped to his knees and supplicated his own father. Be gracious, God, and we will give you great sacrifices. Have mercy upon us, please. And ladies and gentlemen, all I think we can really do now is pity poor Odysseus. Because he tried to explain, Homer tells us that Odysseus kissed his son and cried, tears pouring down his cheeks. Dear son, I am no God. I am your father. But the longed-for father-son homecoming still did not happen. Because Telemachus still absolutely refused to believe. No, you are not Odysseus. You are not my father. Some god must have cast a spell. A few moments ago you were an old man in rags. Now you look like a god. And Odysseus was reduced to having to try again. Son, I am indeed your father, and no other Odysseus will ever come to you. I have come home. And as for the way I look, Athena did that. The goddess can transform me as she likes. One moment a beggar, the next a handsome young man in fine clothing. But son... I am your father. And finally, 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 folks, Telemachus believed. And the longed-for reunion, well, it happened. There were bitter tears, there was joy, there was happiness, there was hugging. But most of all, there was a sense of loss. Both father and son knew that no matter how happy the reunion now, they had both lost 20 years of their lives, which they could never, ever, ever get back together again. But, ladies and gentlemen, I need not remind you, our boy Odysseus was, at his heart, 
a situational pragmatist. And so all of the joyous, heartwarming reunion stuff, well, it didn't last for very long. And almost immediately, Odysseus was down to the practical matters of how to get rid of those 108 suitors. And he positively peppered his son Telemachus with questions. How many suitors are there? What are their names? Are they good fighters? What sort of weapons do they have? What sort of weapons are inside of the great hall? What do we know about the slaves? What do we know about the retainers? Are there any we can count on? Are there any that we know have gone over to the suitor's side? And ladies and gentlemen, well, Telemachus was in absolute awe. The young boy had grown up hearing stories for the last 10 years about his father's heroic exploits with the wooden horse, his father's heroic exploits on the battlefields of Troy. And now here he was in the flesh, his own hero dad, in full tactical planning mode. And it actually took Telemachus a few moments to stop his father and to work up the courage to point out the obvious flaw in his dad's enthusiasm. But eventually, Telemachus spoke. Father, it is too much. We cannot fight. The two of us against such strong men and so many of them? Father, there are dozens of suitors, not just a handful. And then, to Telemachus's further amazement, well, Superdad, his hero father, had not backed down for a moment. Instead, Odysseus had calmly and rather ironically questioned his son. So, when Athena and Zeus join our side in the battle, will the two of us be strong enough then, or do you think, son, that we will need even more help. And with that, Telemachus simply chose to step back, watch his dad, and enjoy the ride. And so the evening was spent with the father and son, huddled together in that shepherd's hut, beginning to hatch a plan. And soon they had figured out the broad details. In the morning, Telemachus would, on his own, return to the palace and then be very sure to not tell a soul, including, Odysseus insisted, Penelope herself, that Odysseus was really home. And then sometime later in the day, Odysseus, back inside of his homeless beggar disguise, well, he would be escorted by the swineherd Eumaeus to the great hall of the palace. Odysseus's plan was to enter the great hall, lay low someplace inside of the corner, reconnoiter on the fighting strength of the suitors, and then come up with a strategy for how to destroy them all. Now Odysseus counseled Telemachus. The key thing for him to do, when he saw the homeless beggar, his own dad in disguise, enter the great hall, well, the key thing for Telemachus to do was to keep his cool, to keep his calm, and no matter what form of abuse, physical or invective, verbal, the suitors threw at Odysseus, Telemachus had to refrain from intervening. The last thing that they could dare happen was that somehow Odysseus' disguise 
be blowing. And then, folks, playing in place, father and son, together for the first time in 20 long years, huddled up close in that shepherd's hut against the bitter outside cold winds, and fell asleep, happy and hopeful for the morning. And so very early the next morning, Telemachus woke up and made his way to the great hall at the palace. And he did precisely as his father had instructed. But folks, Telemachus did it all with a remarkably newly acquired swagger and sense of confidence. He spoke more assertively, there was no more bursting into tears in the middle of his sentences, and he carried his weapons with a sense of serious conviction. His mother was entirely shocked. This was no longer the milk-toast mama's boy that she was used to bossing around, and the suitors were genuinely alarmed. It actually looked as though somehow Telemachus had learned how to use those weapons. So in short, the mama's boy of Book 1 through 4 of Homer's Odyssey, the Telemachy story, seems here in Books 15 through 24 of Homer's Odyssey, to have, quite magically, grown himself a pair. And all that we listeners can assume is that Athena's rescue mission to Pylos and Sparta must have been absolutely brilliant because it taught the lad not only how to speak, how to carry himself, but also how to effectively hold and handle military hardware. Either that, or the Homer, the Homers, or the committee of Homers who stitched together the Odyssey, neglected to notice or hoped that we readers and listeners would not be overly concerned by the somewhat improbable overnight maturation of one of the Odyssey's lead characters. But, either way you look at it, hooray for Telemachus, because now he and his hero father are going to make themselves an absolutely first-class hero team. Now, meanwhile, as Telemachus strutted confidently about the palace, Eumaeus and the homeless beggar guest, well, the two of them started together to hike on into town themselves. And it was an uneventful hike, except for being harassed along the way by one particularly foul-mouthed slave. Now, folks, the slave's name was Melanthius, and Melanthius was a goatherd. And just if you're curious about such things, the Odyssey actually features a goatherd slave, a swineherd slave, and later we will meet a cowherd slave too. But in this case, it was the goatherd, Melanthius. And Melanthius stepped in front of the path, effectively blocking Eumaeus and Odysseus from making their way any further forward. And Melanthius, in his crudest, rudest goatherd speech, began to taunt the two travelers. So, so what do we have here? It looks like garbage. Walking with more garbage. So tell me, swineherd, where in the world are you taking that particularly filthy pig? And what a revolting hairless wonder he is. I have an idea. Why don't you hand him over to me? I can use him to shovel goat shit. And in return... I might even give him a cup away to fatten up his scrawny ass hide. 
Well, Eumaeus attempted to caution Melanthius, reminding Melanthius the goatherd that he was being unnecessarily rude to a stranger on the island, and that if Odysseus, his master, were to someday return home and hear about such rude behavior, well, Melanthius would most certainly be punished for his gross violations of Xenia. Now, ladies and gentlemen, now came Odysseus's very first test in his ability to keep his cool and not blow his disguise. Because the swineherd Melanthius, instead of realizing himself and apologizing for his temporary outburst, instead the swineherd Melanthius announced that he considered his master Odysseus to be dead and good riddance to him, and further, with any luck, the suitors would have dispatched young Telemachus by the end of the day, too. And then, to add insult to injury, or I suppose more technically, to add injury to insult, Melanthius drop-kicked Odysseus. Now Homer reports what happened next. Odysseus pondered for a few moments. Should he pivot and kill Melanthius with a quick swing of his walking stick? Or instead, grab him, flip him over, and beat out his brains? In the end... Odysseus controlled himself. And folks, our boy Odysseus did absolutely nothing at all. But as he was walking away from the goatherd Melanthius, Odysseus took careful note of the man's name and face. And as we know about our boy Odysseus, he is never one to let an insult go unpaid or unpunished. There would be a reckoning some day, as far as Odysseus was concerned. Well, soon they arrived at the outer gates of the palace, and even from the outer gates of the palace they could hear the sound of the feasting, the carousing, and the partying of the hundred and eight suitors inside of the great hall. Now, folks, at this stage, I invite you to pause with me, because I think before we enter into Odysseus's great hall with him, we should pause for a moment and just remember what sort of a mental state our hero must be in at this particular moment in time. Folks, Odysseus is about to cross the threshold into his very own home, a home that he has been absent from, for twenty long years. And of course, his heart beating, he knows that when he gets into that house, he is going to finally lay eyes on his wife, his dear Penelope. But he also knows, his heart beating perhaps nearly as hard, that there are a hundred and eight heavily armed men waiting in that great hall. And absolutely any one of those men, or all of them combined, would be more than happy, eager, and willing to kill Odysseus, if for a moment he lets down his guard and the suitors manage to see through his disguise. So Odysseus would have sucked in his breath and reminded himself that, regardless of what happens, come what may, I am a homeless beggar. I have to, my life depends upon it, stay 
in character. And then, folks, with all of those worries occupying Odysseus's mind, well, in a moment, his great disguise was nearly undone. And to explain how, well, folks, I need to invite you now to travel back in time with me, 20 years back, to episode number one of Odyssey the Podcast, where I introduced you to a particularly clever and polytropous young puppy. And ladies and gentlemen, if you've forgotten, allow me to remind you of the story of Argus, the faithful retainer dog. And the story goes something like this. Back 20 years ago, Odysseus's favorite hunting dog had given birth to a litter of puppies. Now the tiniest, the weakest, the runt of the litter of puppies had been a little dog named Argus. And the servants, the slaves, doing what they always did with the runt of the litter, were preparing to drown the puppy Argus in a bucket of water, such that the mother had more time, attention, and milk for these stronger, healthier puppies inside of her litter. But at the very last moment, Odysseus had stepped into the room and saved young Argus's life. And on that day, folks, Argus, the incredibly polytropous puppy, had turned and realized that he owed his master a debt. A debt that he would repay with obedience for the balance of his entire life. So Argus had grown up to be an incredibly obedient and loyal dog. Well, the one year that Odysseus had had at home had passed very quickly, and then, as we know, Odysseus had been called off to the Trojan War. Argus had wanted to follow, but Odysseus had explained to Argus at the gates of the city that loyal retainers, and especially loyal puppy retainers, do not belong in the epics of war, but only in the epics of homecoming. So Odysseus had turned to Argus and delivered the fateful command. Argus, sit, stay, and wait for Master. Now, of course, when Master had given that fateful command, he had only expected to be away from Ithaca for a matter of weeks, possibly a month or two at most. But as far as Argus, the obedient dog, was concerned, a command was a command. And if Argus was anything, he was faithful. And so, ladies and gentlemen, the long, long, long years had rolled on. And every day, the people of Ithaca would find Argus standing ready each morning and again each evening at the gates to the Ithacan palace. But sadly, folks, dogs, even the most faithful, wonderful, and polytropous of dogs, while dogs measure their years on Zeus's green earth much differently than do we humans. And so, inevitably, Argus grew from a puppy into a very old dog indeed. And soon, well, Argus's health began to fail. First it was his eyesight, and then he was plagued by arthritis. And eventually, all that Argus had left to help him out navigating was his one very good nose. And the poor dog was reduced to lying prone on his belly and waiting 
at the gates of the city. And then, whenever a stranger arrived at the gates of the palace, Wallargus would do his best. He'd force himself up on his poor little arthritic legs, sniff the air and hope against hope that the stranger approaching was his master, finally come home again. And ladies and gentlemen, Argus had replayed his longed-for reunion scene over and over and over in his imagination 10,000 times. Master would return. Master would find Argus faithful and waiting at the gates. And then Master would bend down, ruffle his ears, pat him proudly in the back, and say those magical words. Good dog. Argus is a good dog. But the truth is, for Argus, it was getting harder. In the early years, Argus remembered, well, Master's slaves had taken care of Argus, had brought him food and water, and taken the time every few days to sit down and help properly groom him. But in recent years, especially the last three years, well, things had changed in Ithaca. Most of Master's old slaves were now long gone, and these new slaves, well, they showed little interest at all in caring for an arthritic old dog, even if it was Master's dog. So now, well, along with the fading eyesight and the horribly painful arthritis, Argus was covered in ticks and fleas, itching him constantly and slowly sucking the remaining lifeblood from his dying body. And Argus grimly knew that if Master had not been so clear on his final command, sit, stay, and wait, well, the easiest thing to do, the most comfortable thing to do, would have simply been to roll over and die. But then, the longed-for day finally arrived, and Argus, one morning, lying in a heap of dung at his master's front gate, heard the sound of strangers approaching. And Argus, ignoring the arthritis, ignoring the pain, ignoring the ticks, ignoring the fleas, raised his head ever so slightly and took one good long sniff into the air. And could it be? Argus took another sniff, just to be sure. But there was no doubt. It was Master. Master had returned, just as Master said he would. And for Argus, the faithful retainer, sit, stay, and wait, while Argus knew that his long, obedient years were over. Master was home, and he, Master's dog, would receive his reward. And folks, at this stage in our tale, I am going to turn it over to Homer, because this is where the bard Homer picks up his account of exactly what happened next. As Odysseus approached, a dog who was lying there lifted his head and pricked up his ears. The dog was Argus, Odysseus's dog. He had trained him, and he had brought him up as a puppy before he had had to sail to Troy. 
but Argus had grown old in his master's absence, and now he lay neglected in a heap of dung, dirty and covered with ticks. But as soon as he was aware of Odysseus, Argus wagged his tail, he flattened his ears, but he lacked the strength to get up and go to his master. And ladies and gentlemen, in that very moment, Odysseus, the master, looked down and recognized his faithful retainer, his obedient puppy, his Argus. But now I fear, and I hesitate to have to tell you, but our story turns from melodrama and happy reunion to deepest tragedy. Because Odysseus, when he recognized his dog Argus, lying there on a pile of dung, well, Odysseus did not bend down. Odysseus did not ruffle Argus's ears. He did not pet Argus, and he did not deliver those longed-for words of praise. Good dog. Argus is a good dog. Instead, Odysseus, his eyes filling with tears, turned his head, and he walked away. So why did he do it? Well, ladies and gentlemen, he did it because he had no choice. The front gates of Ithaca, like the front gates of any huge and populous, busy, bustling city, were a constant source of crowds and traffic. Suitors, tradespeople, slaves, and servants coming and going through those gates, especially at this time in the morning. And so if Odysseus, disguised as a homeless beggar from out of town, had have bent down and engaged in some sort of a conversation with a very happy, very joyous little doggy, well, everybody, of course, would have put two and two together. And so Odysseus had no choice but to shed some tears and walk away from poor Argus. And as to Argus? Well, I won't hide you from it. There was no way, no possible way, that Argus could have made sense of his master's action. All that Argus knew is that he had sat faithfully and obediently, sit, stay, and wait for twenty long, painful years. And then his master, inexplicably, had walked away. So maybe I wasn't a good dog after all, Argus considered. And I will leave to Homer to conclude our tale. Twenty years. Twenty years had passed since Argus last saw Odysseus. And now he saw him for the final time. And then death came and darkened the eyes of the dog. Now, ladies and gentlemen, where to begin? I confess that the story of Argus tears me up 
every time I have to tell it. And there must be something universal about puppy stories that has been pulling on people's heartstrings for the past 2,500 years. And so Homer, a consummate storyteller, obviously included the Argos story in his Odyssey because he knew that it was a crowd-pleaser and that generations of bards like me would silently thank Homer every time that we get to stand on a stage or sit in front of a podcasting mic and exploit such shamelessly low-hanging melodramatic fruit. But, if you will indulge me in a wee bit of scholarly reflection. Folks, the placement of the Argus story, right before Odysseus is about to enter his palace after 20 years away, is actually quite deliberate and, I think, genius on Homer's part. Because the dog Argus is, in a symbolic sense, a stand-in for the entire kingdom of Ithaca. So let's walk through this. 20 years ago, when Odysseus the Master departed, Ithaca was, like Argus, strong, healthy, and loyal. But as the years of Odysseus's absence dragged on and on, well, the state of Ithaca fell into disrepair and neglect. The state, like the dog, lost its strength, lost its vitality, and lost its, well, social and political health. And now the state, like Argus, was mostly neglected. The loyal slaves who had fed and groomed the dog and the kingdom were now mostly gone. And the disloyal slaves, well, they didn't even recognize that Ithaca was Odysseus's property or that Argus had been Odysseus's dog. And finally, those blood-sucking ticks and fleas infesting the poor body of Argus, draining that body of its vital blood and resources? Well, it's no stretch at all to see those ticks and fleas, all 108 of them, as suitors, infesting, if you will, the Ithacan body politic. So, that's my little geeky deconstruction of my favorite puppy story. Let's return now to Odysseus entering his palace. Well, he arrived at his great hall and he found the suitors, as he would have any day had he arrived, busy with one of their banquets. And so Odysseus saw a splendid opportunity to test out the suitors' violations or adherences to Zeus's laws of Xenia. So in his homeless beggar disguise, Odysseus systematically walked through the hall, walking up to each of the 108 suitors, holding out his hand and requesting a scrap of food. And Antinous, the leading nobleman in the hall, made it pretty clear right away how he felt about Zeus's laws of Xenia and hospitality to strangers. Antinous spoke. What god imposed this pest onto our feasting? Stay over out of the way, beggar. Nowhere near my table. Or if you prefer, you can get lost completely. And with that, Antinous had brandished a footstool, held it over his head, and threatened the homeless beggar with physical violence. 
Now, folks, Odysseus should now have backed down. Remember, he was disguised as a homeless beggar and a pretty feeble one at that. And as to Antinous, well, he was the leading nobleman in the hall. Antinous could have summarily killed the beggar and nobody would have so much as batted an eye. But Odysseus simply could not resist an accurate, though dangerously impudent, retort of Antinous's rudeness. And so the homeless beggar, surprising to everybody, spoke up. You idiot. You sit here, enjoying somebody else's food. And yet, you don't have a single crumb from your great banquet to share with me. And that, folks... Well, that pretty much did it so far as Antinous was concerned. That does it! You, a beggar, dare to insult me? And then the footstool went flying, hitting Odysseus square on the back. Well, to their credit, some of the other suitors attempted to step in before Antinous skinned the homeless man alive and they warned Antinous about the danger of what he was about to do. Antinous, they counseled, what you're doing is wrong. Antinous, you should not have hit that poor beggar. What if he turns out to be a god? This could end badly. Antinous, haven't you heard of gods who come disguised into homes as strangers? And ironically... Well, the unwitting suitors had been nearly correct. But it wasn't a god who had come in disguise today. It was the owner of the home, whose food the suitors were now consuming. Meanwhile, Penelope, who was upstairs in the ladies' quarters of the palace, while she had heard all of the raised voices and the sound of furniture being thrown around her great hall, so she had sent a slave down to make inquiries what was happening. And the slave had come back and informed her that there was a new stranger guest in town, a homeless beggar who was currently sleeping in the hut of the swineherd Eumaeus. And so Penelope had summarily summoned Eumaeus to her quarters and questioned Eumaeus about the new man in town. Well, folks, Eumaeus provided a brief resume of the tall tale that the homeless beggar had told to him, and then Eumaeus explained to Penelope that the beggar had claimed, although Eumaeus didn't believe it, to have seen Odysseus only very recently, and further had claimed, although Eumaeus didn't believe it, that Odysseus was actually alive, well, and on his way to Ithaca right now. Well, of course, that meant that Penelope simply had to question the stranger. Call him over. Let me talk to him in person, Penelope ordered Eumaeus. So Eumaeus approached Odysseus with the summons. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Odysseus wanted more than anything in the world to sit down and talk to his wife Penelope. But he knew that now was not the time or the place to do it. 
First of all, there was no way that he would ever be able to talk to Penelope ever in private. It would be entirely inappropriate for any Bronze Age woman, a married woman, to be seen privately in the company of a man other than her husband or a son. And particularly for Penelope, well, in her precarious situation, she had to be scrupulous, beyond scrupulous, about any such violations. So, Odysseus knew when he did go to talk to Penelope, it was going to be in the Great Hall, in open, with witnesses. So the choice came down to doing it now, in daylight, with a hundred and eight suitors watching on, or to save the conversation till later that night, once it was dark, once the suitors had all retired for the night, and once Penelope was only escorted by her slaves and serving women. So Odysseus decided, for the good of the conversation, to not upset these suitors or raise their suspicions, and for the good of his disguise, to beg off on meeting Penelope until later that night. And so he sent Penelope a message, requesting a deferral of the meeting by providing the quite plausible excuse that he did not wish to further invoke the wrath of the suitors especially of the suitor who had just thrown furniture at him. Well, Penelope had received the message and agreed. Well, the stranger is not a fool, at least. And it could happen that somebody will attack him again. These suitors, they have no respect. They're a bunch of arrogant bullies. But, folks... Just as Odysseus thought he had cleverly navigated his way out of one challenge, well, a new challenge arrived at the front gates of the Great Hall. A beggar stepped in, a beggar named Iris, and Homer informs us that the beggar Iris was a local boy notorious for his greed. And Iris, true to Homer's description, saw the new homeless man cutting in on his rich begging territory, and Iris immediately did his best to shoo Odysseus away. Or these fists of mine, these fists of mine will persuade you to leave. Now Odysseus, doing his best to lay low, attempted to diplomatically diffuse the situation with Iris. So here's what Odysseus said. What's wrong with you? I've done nothing to harm or insult you, nor do I begrudge you the food that you get from these gentlemen here. Look, there's plenty of room for both of us in this hall, and you really shouldn't be jealous of what people give me. I mean, aren't both of us tramps and beggars? Don't we both depend upon the gods to provide us with a living? But... Be careful about your insults. I might get angry, and old as I am, I will crack your ribs and smash your face to a bloody pulp. Now, of course, from our perspective, this was the time when the beggar Iris should have prudently backed down. But if we think about the situation from Iris's perspective... Well, he was certainly younger, faster, and stronger than the old, half-blind, arthritic, bandy-legged man that Athena had disguised Odysseus as. So Iris, instead of backing down at the warning, 
Iris actually raised his voice and deliberately caught the attention of the suitors in the hall. Hey! Hey! This filthy scoundrel? He yaks on like some sort of old woman. But I'm going to teach him a lesson with a sharp left and a right to the jaw. I'll knock out his teeth. I'll scatter them to the floor. So tuck in your rags, beggar. These gentlemen, they can watch us. That is, beggar, if you dare to take on a younger man. And then, ladies and gentlemen, Odysseus, the glorious king, come home after 20 long years away. Well, our boy Odysseus was reduced to taking part in a tawdry little homeless man versus homeless man fist fight, while 108 suitors, eating and drinking his household wealth away, gathered round the two homeless men, laughed, cheered, and doubtless wagered bets on the great fun to happen. In fact, Antinous, the chief suitor, he eagerly declared a prize. Beggars, there are goat sausages roasting on the fire. So, whichever one of you wins the fight, he gets the sausages. And as for the other of you, you'll get no food from us ever again. And with that, the suitors formed a circle around the two hungry combatants, thinking it great sport that two homeless men were reduced to beating each other to a pulp in exchange for the promise of a sausage. And at the very last moment, right before things would have turned very ugly for Odysseus, Athena worked her magic. Because Odysseus, in his current disguise, old, half-blind, and scrawny, well, he would have taken an absolute beating in this fight. But Athena rectified that. With some sort of a shot of deific steroid, I suppose, she juiced up her boy Odysseus to absolutely Herculean proportions. Homer tells us what happened next. Odysseus took off his rags. He tied them around his waist, revealing massive thighs and mighty shoulders, an enormous chest and huge arms. The suitors, they were all astonished. Well, this means the end of poor Iris. Just look at that man's thighs. Under his rags? What a body the old guy has. And meanwhile, Odysseus, suddenly aware of his brand new Athena-enhanced super strength, now considered his fighting options. Homer reports, Odysseus wondered if he should hit Iris hard enough to kill him, or instead to just give him a tap to knock him down. In the end... Odysseus decided on the light touch in order to keep the suitors from being suspicious. And then, ladies and gentlemen, Homer narrates the fight. So they came to blows. First, Iris hit Odysseus's shoulder. And then Odysseus punched back and broke Iris's jaw. Blood gushed from his mouth. With a moan, he fell his teeth chattering, his legs flailing. And the suitors, they threw up their hands to cheer, and they died of laughter. 
And then folks, Odysseus dragged the barely conscious body of the beggar Iris and propped Iris up at the entrance to the great hall. Sit there, you good-for-nothing. You must not bully visitors and beggars, or you will suffer even worse than this. And of course, folks, well, the suitors should not have been paying attention to the fun of the fight. They should have been listening to Odysseus's very clear and quite prophetic message. You must not bully visitors and beggars, or you will suffer even worse than this. But the suitors, oblivious to anything to do with Xenia by this stage, missed the warning, missed the message, missed the prophecy, and contented themselves with sending the promised sausage the homeless beggar's way. And then the suitors returned to their feasting and thought no more about it. But meanwhile, upstairs in the ladies' quarters of the palace, Athena, the mastermind behind the Odysseus homecoming strategy, if you will, well, Athena paid a visit to Penelope. Now, folks, she didn't pay the visit in person. All we know is that suddenly Penelope was visited by inspiration. So how much of what happened next was Athena's prompting and how much of it was Polytropus Penelope's own ideas? Well, we will never quite know. But here's the story of what did happen next. Penelope woke up from her afternoon nap and was inspired to dress herself up in her most flattering and provocative of clothing. And then once she was in that flattering and provocative clothing, Penelope was inspired to make a grand appearance in front of all of the suitors in the Great Hall. Now her plan, or Athena's plan, seems to have been to sexually tease the suitors into an all-out financial bidding war for the future hand in marriage of Ithaca's luscious queen. Now, ladies and gentlemen, as you know, as I know, as we've talked about many times, over the past three years, the suitors had pretty well laid waste the entire household resources of Ithaca. So now Penelope, or Athena, had decided this would be a brilliant time to attempt to seduce those suitors into voluntarily replenishing some of the lost household stores. So the plan which Penelope was concocting was simple. She was going to dress up and then dangle herself as marriage bait in front of a hall of 108 slightly drunken and overly horny men and then see what kind of treasure her bait might catch. So here is what happened. First of all, Penelope did her level best with the physical resources at her mortal disposal. So Penelope chose the best of her clothing, the best of her jewelry, and took extra care with the best of her makeup. And then when Penelope had done her level best, it was time for Athena to step in and add a little bit of deific airbrushing, if you will. Homer reports the following. Athena put ambrosial beauty onto Penelope's face, 
the kind of beauty that Aphrodite uses. She made Penelope shapelier and taller. Athena gave Penelope gifts of godlike power to make men astonished when they saw her. And then, suitably gilded by Athena and doing her level mortal best, Penelope, holding her head high, intent on her fishing plan, stepped down from the ladies' quarters and placed herself publicly on display inside of the great hall. Well, Homer reports the inevitable response of those 108 men. I'll quote, The suitors, the suitors weakened at the knees, desire bewitched them, and they all longed to lie with Penelope. And then Penelope, Polytropus Penelope, in full command of her audience, well, Penelope launched into a speech and, in effect, presented her bait. Here's what she said. At the time, at the time when my husband left for war, he took my right hand and he said to me, Now, wife, I do not think that we Greeks will all come home alive from Troy. The Trojans, they say, are deadly fighters. So, I do not know if the gods will bring me safely back or if I will die at Troy. So, wife, when our son has reached manhood, then you should marry a man of your own choosing and then leave this house. Gentlemen, those were my husband's words. And now the time has come. Tomorrow... I will marry one of you. And then, ladies and gentlemen, Penelope, having presented the bait, Penelope now proceeded to set the hook. She continued her speech. But, gentlemen, one further thought is troubling my heart. You suitors haven't been coming here in the right way, in the time-honored way. When young men are competing for the hand of a lady, a lady who is of noble birth, the custom is that they bring gifts, sheep and cows, and many magnificent treasures as well. And folks... All 108 men in that hall, tantalized by Penelope's Aphrodite-like appearance and teased by her promise that in the morning she was going to marry one of them, well, all 108 of those men, they bit down hard on the hook that Penelope had dangled in front of them. And in no time at all, the men had summoned their servants and slaves to return to their own households, to load carts high with treasure, and to bring that treasure back to the household of Odysseus. Treasure which was going to be some compensation, at least, for everything that the suitors had consumed in the preceding three years. So, on the surface, folks, 
Penelope's plan had worked out exactly as she had intended. Soon, the Ithacan storerooms were stock full of valuable treasure once more. But the plan came with a precarious price. Because there was no way around it now, Penelope had irrevocably backed herself into a corner. How? Well, first, she had publicly declared Odysseus to be dead. Next, she had declared that Odysseus had instructed her to remarry as soon as Telemachus came of manhood. And finally, she had announced to all of the suitors that tomorrow, the very next morning, she was going to accept one of them as her new husband. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we need to remember something. Of course, there were 108 suitors in the hall watching Penelope dangle her bait. But also in the great hall when Penelope made her speech was her husband. Well, folks, I face a little bit of a dilemma at this point in my story. And my dilemma boils down to this question. Does Penelope know that the homeless beggar in her hall is actually her husband Odysseus? Or, on the other hand, does Penelope not know? And all that I can tell you is that Homeric scholars have been banging their collective heads against the wall of this particular question for pretty well the past 2,500 years. And here's why. Because if Penelope knows well, then her actions in milking these suitors for every penny of treasure they have, well, it makes eminently good Polytropus Penelope sense. Because if you think about it, if her husband is home, if she knows he's home, well, then Penelope knows that in the very near future, he is going to have to attempt to kill all of those suitors. And if he succeeds, well, then she and Odysseus will be wealthier by her gambit this evening. And if Odysseus fails and is killed by the suitors in the morning, she's going to be forced to marry a new man anyway. But ladies and gentlemen, on the other hand, if Penelope does not know that the homeless beggar in her hall is really her husband Odysseus, then we listeners can only assume that Penelope, in making her declaration... The time has come. The day when I am to marry is at hand. Well, we can only assume that that is Penelope's genuine, heartfelt intent. And so, folks, all I can tell you at this stage as your storyteller is that the question, does she know, does she not know? Well, that question is going to continue to taunt and tease us for the balance of our story. And if 2,500 years of Homeric scholarship have not agreed upon an answer, then there's no way that I'm going to be able to offer you one myself. And that, ladies and gentlemen, well, that's an absolutely perfect little cliffhanger to end this edition of Odyssey the Podcast. Right on the edge of the promised meeting, the evening meeting between the homeless beggar and the Queen of Ithaca. And all I can do now is promise you folks that episode number 13 of Odyssey the Podcast 
is going to be an absolute blockbuster. So now, on to a brief little teaser about the post-story commentary to follow. Folks, if you recall all the way back to the post-story commentary in episode 9, I think it was the commentary where I talked about Athenian courtroom drama. Well, if you remember in that commentary, I pointed out to you how gods evolve over time. And how Athena, at least the Athena of Homer's creation, was quite a different deity than was the Athena that showed up later on in classical Greece. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it turns out that the same sort of thing happens to human characters. They evolve over time, too. And so some characters, absolutely beloved by Homer's audience and by Homer himself, Well, later on, inside of world history and culture, those characters transformed from heroes into absolutely loathed and reviled villains. And chief among the characters that this happened to is our boy Odysseus. And so, in the post-story commentary to follow, I am going to assume the role of tour guide and take you through some of the varied cultural takes on Odysseus. I think you're going to find it really interesting and an awful lot of educational fun. So if you want to take a moment now, refill your water bottle, top up your travel mug, or crack open your favorite libation. And then in a moment, it will be off to the post-story commentary. And so, welcome back to the post-story commentary, ladies and gentlemen. Now, I told you that what this post-story commentary was going to be was a sampler on cultural takes on Odysseus over time. Now, what that means is that I'm not going to be setting out to provide a comprehensive survey. Folks, there is simply way, way, way too much content over the last 2,500 years for me to attempt something like that inside of a commentary, let alone a full, complete podcast serial. So instead, what I'm going to do over the next while is drop in on four different moments in history in order to see how the preeminent writers of four different time periods in Western world literature have chosen to portray our boy Odysseus. So I'm going to begin with classical Greece, about 300 or so years following Homer's original Iliad and Odyssey. And in classical Greece, I'm going to explore the plays of Sophocles and of Euripides. And then I'm going to take a leap ahead to Rome. And there, after a quick playful look at Juvenal, I'm going to dive into a more serious focus on Virgil's Aeneid. Following Virgil, We're going to take a 1,300-year hop forward to the European Late Middle Ages. And there we will dive into Dante's Inferno. And finally, well, I'll take you right up to the 19th century, to Victorian England, and we will take a look at the most famous Victorian portrayal of Odysseus in Tennyson's poem titled Ulysses. So, it should be pretty obvious that I'm leaving lots and lots of takes on Odysseus on my podcaster's cutting room floor, but you should know, 
Folks, Odysseus shows up in a massive number of literary works, from Shakespeare through to 21st century novels. Odysseus shows up in opera, in television, on the big screen, and even as a character in 21st century video games. And of course, every writer, every director, every programmer who creates a guy named Odysseus for either a starring role or for a walk-on bit role in his or her artistic production has to make their own decision on just who Odysseus is going to be. So all my sampler is going to be is a jumping-off place, and the works I've chosen are the ones which I consider to be the most famous or culturally resonant of the literally thousands of takes on Our Boy Odysseus. So, that caveat and qualifier in place, let's take a brief moment before we dive into our survey to establish a baseline starting point on the Odysseus character. And that baseline, of course, has to begin with Homer. So let's move back to circa 750 BCE or so to take a look at what Homer says about Odysseus in the Iliad, but primarily in the Odyssey. Now, folks, this is very familiar territory to all of we listeners, so I'm going to keep it brief. All I'm going to outline are what I consider to be the three defining characteristics of Odysseus as originally portrayed in Homer. And those three defining characteristics are number one, his cunning, his creativity, and his tactical ability to problem solve by thinking outside of the box. Number two, his moral code as a situational pragmatist, or as a practitioner of mitis wisdom, that the ends always, always, always justify the means. And finally, number three, Odysseus's mastery of words, of tall tales, of eloquent speeches, of clever wordplay, and sometimes of outright lies, as the central tool in his Polytropus toolbox. So, those are the three characteristics by which Homer portrays his character Odysseus. Let's move on to Homer's opinion of his character, Odysseus. And folks, that's pretty easy and clear-cut. Homer deeply admires his boy and considers Odysseus to be a hero. Capital H-E-R-O, hero. And folks, Homer expects that we listeners and we readers will, without exception, see Odysseus in that very same light. Ladies and gentlemen, especially inside of Homer's Odyssey, it is difficult, almost impossible, to find any commentary on the character of Odysseus coming from the pen of the Odyssey's omniscient narrator that is not overwhelmingly positive. And when Homer, the author, puts words into the mouths of the Odyssey's most authoritative judges of character— well, both Zeus and Athena, the only gods in the Odyssey who provide moral commentary, well, both Zeus and Athena agree that Odysseus is an all-round awesome and generally wonderful guy. So, there is our baseline take on Odysseus as we begin our sampler tour, provided to us by no less an authority than Homer himself, the original creator of the Odysseus character.
And now, folks, our sampler tour is set to begin. So now, let's move forward, oh, three to four hundred years into classical Greece and see what the classical Greeks did with Odysseus. Did they hold on to the Homeric idea, or did they spin the character off in some other directions? And folks, I actually, I suppose, inadvertently used the word spin-off here, but let's stop and talk about this, because we, of course, in the 21st century, in the later 20th century, in television series and in movies, well, we think that we created the genre of the spin-off series. But it was actually the classical Greeks who came up with this little bit of marketing genius. And the classical Greek playwrights, particularly Euripides, Aeschylus, and Sophocles, recognized very quickly that if you want to really, really make your play popular, if you really want people to attend your productions and to award your play's first prize in theatrical festivals, then what you do is you don't give them new plot and characters. You go back to the plot and the characters that they have previously invested in. So, what we get inside of classical Greece is we get a host of plays all built around Homer. Now, when it comes to plays that actually focus in on Odysseus stories, well, the big two playwrights are Sophocles and especially Euripides. So, the question you were going to ask is, do Sophocles or Euripides have any particular unique take on the Odysseus character which is different or a, a tweaking or a variation on what Homer offered in his Iliad or Odyssey? And the short answer is yes. Folks, Sophocles gave us two plays which feature Odysseus as lead character. The first play was titled Ajax. It arrived on the stage circa 440 BCE. And then a few years later on the stage, circa 409 BCE, Sophocles penned a play called Philoctetes. Now, folks, the two Sophocles plays actually form a really interesting contrast. In the play Ajax, Odysseus employs his considerable verbal rhetorical arsenal towards noble, laudable, and virtuous ends. And then a few years later, in the play Philoctetes, well, the same guy, Odysseus, uses his very same verbal arsenal, if you will, towards purposes of evil and corruption of innocence. Now, what Sophocles does inside of his play, Philoctetes, is he has Odysseus, an evil, conniving, liar wordsmith, in the company of a young, noble, and virtuous boy that you might have heard of called Neoptolemus, Achilles' son. Now, inside of the play, Odysseus is evil, Neoptolemus is virtuous and good. And as the play progresses, folks, more and more Odysseus tries to corrupt young Neoptolemus into abandoning his high moral principles and engaging in shameless lying and deceit. So there's a quick little bit of dialogue I'll read you. Here goes, Odysseus trying to manipulate Neoptolemus. I know, my boy, I know that this sort of thing is not in your character. You don't like uttering such lying nonsense, nor do you like plotting against people. But you must also know what a delight it is to gain a victory after that sort of a struggle. 
To which young, innocent noble Neoptolemus replies, Oh, distressing words! Make for distressing deeds, Odysseus, son of Laertes. And it is not in my nature, nor was it in my father's nature, to do treacherous things. And folks, just a little geeky reminder of something we talked about a bit earlier. But here, once again, in the hands of the playwright Sophocles, we have the sharp distinction being drawn between the nobility, the honesty, and the virtue of Achilles, and his son Neoptolemus in this case, and the essential corruption, deceit, and lies of our boy Odysseus. Now let's move on to Euripides. Now folks, Euripides wrote a whole ton of plays, and we've lost some of them, but there's still a whole whack of them that are extant for us to look at, and Euripides was writing his plays circa 480 to 406 BCE. Now, unlike Sophocles, who shows some balance and gives us Odysseus's words for good in one play versus Odysseus's words for evil in another play, well, Euripides is consistent right down the line in all of his plays that feature Odysseus. And every one of those plays, ladies and gentlemen, is a total hatchet job on our boy. So let's start with a play called Hecuba. And if you want to go back to the story behind it, then you'll want to listen to Trojan War, the podcast, episode number 20. Now, the plot of this play is simple. The Greeks have to decide, after the fall of the city of Troy, whether to sacrifice a daughter of the Trojan royal family, a girl named Polyxena, at the tomb of Achilles. There's a big debate inside of the Greek army on whether this is necessary in order to gain favorable wins for the Greeks heading back home to their own country. Now, the Greeks are undecided. Some people say, sacrifice a teenage girl. Other Greeks are saying, there's been enough death already. Let's not sacrifice any more teenage girls still. And then in this play, Odysseus steps in and uses his eloquent skills of rhetorical persuasion, of course, to convince the Greeks to kill the girl Polyxena. And Euripides' most succinct description of Odysseus in his play Hecuba, it would likely be this quote, describing Odysseus as follows, quote, That shifty-hearted butcher knife, that sweet-coaxing, pandering son of Laertes. So now let's move on to the next Euripides play, titled The Women of Troy. And again, Trojan War, the podcast, episode 20, will give you the backstory you need here. So let's start with a quick plot synopsis. The city of Troy has fallen, and Queen Hecuba of Troy has just received the news that the Trojan royal women are to be doled out as prizes of war to various and sundry Greek warlords. And further, Hecuba has just been informed that it is her fate to be doled out to Odysseus. She is going to be sent back to Ithaca with him as a slave. And in the play, Hecuba laments as follows. I quote, So now I belong to a perjured, impious outcast who defies man's law and God's, a monster of wickedness whose tongue twists straight to crooked, truth to lies, friendships to hate, a man who mocks right and honors wrong. 
And folks, if that is not damnation enough of our boy Odysseus, I will remind you that inside of this play by Euripides, it is Odysseus who takes the infant heir to the Trojan throne, the baby Astyanax, and hurls him violently to his death over the city walls. In other sources, there's some debates on whether this act of infanticide was conducted by Neoptolemus or by Odysseus, but in Euripides' play, it is Odysseus who kills babies too. Now, folks, I could go on because there is the play Palamedes and there is also the play Iphigenia at Aulis, and both of them managed to do hatchet jobs in our boy Odysseus. But I think you get the general idea of what Euripides was up to. So just a couple of final comments on Euripides before we move on. And here I want to quote the eminent scholar, author, and critic W.B. Stanford, who wrote a book titled The Quest for Ulysses. And in the 256 pages of that book, well, here's what Stanford says about Euripides and the, well, his take on the Odysseus character. I quote, Euripides's blackening of Odysseus's character had a lasting influence on classical drama. The serviceable diplomat and statesman of Homer's Iliad is transformed by Euripides into a detestable politique whom no humane writer could admire. And folks, I think that, well, W.B. Stanford has pretty well hit it on the head. But possibly full disclosure is in order here. Because Stanford points out that Euripides' blackening of Odysseus's character had a lasting influence on classical drama. But if you go back to Trojan War, the podcast, I think you will very quickly see that in my selection of Odysseus stories, Euripides had a lasting influence on not only classical drama, but on Jeff Wright's Trojan War, the podcast portrayal of Odysseus too. Okay, let's now move forward a few years to circa 130 Common Era. I want to take you to a particularly fun little take in Odysseus, which I can't resist including because folks form the basis of a post-story commentary just a few episodes back. So this is a take by the Roman writer Juvenal. You'll find it if you go looking inside of his work titled The Sixteen Satires. Now, Juvenal appears to be the first author who listens to Odysseus's great wanderings tale, which he tells to the Phaeacian audience, and decides that the entire tale is a piece of fabricated bullshit. And, oh, just one little sidebar, if you will. Folks, once we enter the Roman era of translating, decoding, or putting spins or takes onto the character Odysseus, just so you know, if you don't already, the Romans chose to change Odysseus' name to Ulysses. And so, moving forward, you're going to find that I'm going to bounce back and forth, use them interchangeably, but don't get confused. I haven't suddenly created a new character who seems alarmingly similar to the Odysseus we already know. So now on to the fun little bit from Juvenal Satires. I'll quote, When Ulysses narrated, he shocked King Alcinous and some others present, perhaps who, angry or laughing, 
thought Odysseus a braggart liar. Won't somebody throw this fellow back into the sea? He deserves a real-life Charybdis, a maelstrom, with his lying tales of Cyclopes and Lastragonian monsters. I'd sooner believe in Scylla or the Clashing Rocks or that leather bag stuffed with every kind of storm wind or Circe with one light touch of her wand transforming Alpanor and all the rest of them into grunting pigs. Did he really take us Phaeacians for such credulous numbskulls? And folks, I confess that I simply had to include Juvenal's little take on Odysseus in this scene so that I could use the phrase credulous numbskulls in my conversations about Odysseus. And I think it is rather interesting where Euripides and Sophocles take everything very seriously and damn Odysseus for his ability to concoct a tall tale or manipulate words. Juvenal here inside of satires just has a great deal of fun as the Phaeacians kind of listen to Odysseus's long bit of blarney and then go, come on, man, do you really think that we are that stupid to really believe everything you're saying? So, that's a little bit of Roman fun with Odysseus. Now let's move on to the major and historically defining take on Odysseus slash Ulysses, which shows up inside of Virgil's Aeneid. Now, folks, when I get into talking about the Aeneid, I'm into talking about a masterwork of world literature, at least as critical, significant, and important in its cultural impact on our thinking up to today, as is the Iliad and the Odyssey. And I'm going to cover Virgil in about four and a half to five minutes. So just recognize that I could very, very, very easily create the Aeneid, the podcast, and add 25 hours and barely scrape the surface of the Aeneid either. So here's what we need to know. Virgil wrote his Aeneid circa 19 BCE, so about 700 years after Homer wrote his Odyssey. And what the Aeneid is, is an epic poem in the style of the Iliad and the Odyssey. So here's the basic plot line. On the night when Troy falls... A Trojan prince named Aeneas, and you will find him playing a bit role all through Trojan War, the podcast. Well, on the night when Troy falls, this particular Trojan prince, Aeneas, led a group of refugees out of the burning city. And then Aeneas, leading those refugees, wandered for quite a few years, fought quite a few major battles, and ultimately settled down and found a nation which we now call Rome. So let's go back a bit, because the critical thing that ties Aeneas into our takes on Odysseus has to do with what happened on the night when Troy fell. Inside of Virgil's Aeneid, Virgil recounts in detail the story of Odysseus's wooden horse. And just a bit of an aside here, folks, I know I'm being geeky, but the story of the wooden horse is not, of course, recounted or even referenced inside of Homer's Iliad. And the only reference to the wooden horse shows up in that little conversation between Helen, Menelaus, and Telemachus inside of Homer's Odyssey. So most of what we know of what happened on the night of the wooden horse actually comes pretty well direct from Virgil's Aeneid. But here's the thing that you need to know. 
Folks, the Aeneid was all kinds of things, but one of the things that Virgil was doing when he wrote his Aeneid is he was writing a foundational myth for the nation of Rome. And by the time that Virgil was writing, well, Imperial Rome was doing very, very well indeed. But what the Romans really, really needed, or Virgil decided that what the Romans really, really needed, was an origin backstory that cast the Roman people as noble and heroic and virtuous and all-round wonderful. And what Virgil decided to do was to take the story of the Trojan War and trace the Romans that he was writing for, trace their ancestry back not to the victorious Greeks inside of that war, but instead back to the Trojans who, as you know, lost the Trojan War. And if you go to Imperial Rome inside Virgil's own time, you will find that there were members of the Roman 1% ruling class who could all very proudly trace their family ancestry all the way back to the crown princes of Troy and to Aeneas himself. But ladies and gentlemen, if you think about this, it actually presented Virgil with a little bit of a problem because... Well, he was tracing his Roman audience's ancestry back to, well, if you will, a bunch of losers. The Trojans lost the Trojan War. And it seems on the surface like a rather improbable national origin myth to trace your ancestry back to the losers and not to the heroic winners of the war. And so what Virgil did to square this polemic, political, or cultural problem, if you will, was to retell the story of the fall of Troy in such a fashion that it became very clear that the only reason the Trojans lost is because the noble, heroic, virtuous, and honest Trojans were deceived by the crooked, tricksy, evil, underhanded, and cowardly Greeks. And immediately, folks, you can see where this is going to go. Because the great deception which caused Troy to fall and burn was Odysseus's wooden horse. And ladies and gentlemen, under the pen of Virgil, Odysseus became the arch-evil terrible, lying, tricksy corrupter who led to the fall of Troy. So, that's Virgil's take on Odysseus. So, why does it matter so much? And folks, here a quick little history lesson is in order. Homer's Iliad and Homer's Odyssey, well, they both vanished from Western Europe sometime around 400 or so with the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. And the Iliad and the Odyssey were not reborn or renaissanced, if that's even a word, back into Western Europe until sometime in the 1400s, when the Greek texts were discovered or found or noticed in the formerly Roman Eastern Empire, and then usually translated into Latin and brought back to the West. But, unlike Homer's Odyssey and Homer's Iliad, Virgil's Aeneid was never, ever, ever lost from Europe. In fact, the reverse. Virgil's Aeneid became the defining work which an educated man, 
and it was men then, would read as part of their studies. Not only would they read the Aeneid, they would practice writing it, they would memorize sections of it. It was a defining intellectual and cultural text. And so, Virgil's take on Trixie Odysseus, a Greek who you should beware of, even when he brings you gifts. Well, Virgil's take got about a thousand-year head start in Europe as the authoritative take on Odysseus before Homer was rediscovered and people got to look at what Homer said about our boy. Okay, folks, so now let's leap forward to the 1300s and take a look at what Dante does. Now, Dante is a Christian author, and essentially what Dante is doing is he is going to take the character that Virgil fleshes out inside of the Aeneid, the wicked, conniving, corrupting, evil, lying, duplicitous, deceptive Ulysses character, and Dante is going to throw that character into hell. Now, that's not really what Dante's Inferno is about. Ulysses is just one character that we are going to meet inside of Dante's hell. So a quick little summary about what's happening inside of the Inferno. Uh, a little bit of a guided tour of hell, if you will. So here's what you need to know. Inside of the plot of Dante's Inferno, Dante is going to be given a guided tour of hell. Now, the tour guide is quite playfully going to actually be the Roman author Virgil himself. And Virgil is an occupant of hell as Dante's Inferno opens. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the way that hell works inside of Dante's imagination is as follows. Hell is depicted as a place underneath the earth which consists of nine ever-deepening concentric circles. Now, the way that hell works is that there are circles, one through nine, and as you descend into hell, into the lower-numbered circles, well, the mortals that you meet who are condemned to eternity in those circles become nastier, and the punishments which they are subjected to become increasingly more horrific. Now, this gave Dante, the author, an absolutely wonderful time because it allowed him to sit back and, inside of his inferno, decide on what he wanted to do and what level of hell he wanted to condemn everybody he knew or had ever heard of, too. And so, inside of the inferno, you're going to meet all kinds of damned souls in different levels of hell. Some of them are fictional characters. Some of them are famous historical personages. And some of them are contemporaries of Dante himself. So a quick tour is in order. I'm not going to go through all of the circles. You'll have to visit yourself. But circle number one of hell contains the virtuous pagans. And if you're curious about what a virtuous pagan is, according to Dante and to a fair whack of mainstream Christian theology, a virtuous pagan is an individual who led a really good, noble, laudable life and did their level best but had the significant chronological historical misfortune of having been born in world history before the death and the resurrection of Christ. And what that meant is that their souls could not be saved. So that means that virtuous pagans, and there are an awful lot of them there, have to go to hell. But since they're virtuous, the level of hell that they're on, level one, isn't really that shitty a place. 
all things being considered. So, who will you find there? Well, let's just limit that to who will you find there that has some bearing on Odyssey the podcast or Trojan War the podcast. And the notable residents of level number one of Dante's Hell include, of course, Virgil, who's going to be the tour guide of the other levels, Homer, and then inside of fictional characters, Hector and Aeneas. Both of them, of course, the good, noble, and heroic Trojans. So now let's move down a circle to level two of hell. Now in level two of hell, we are going to find human beings who fell prey to the sin of lust. And from our Homeric interests, it's pretty obvious who is going to be there. In level two of Dante's hell, you will find Helen of Troy. Achilles, and the less good Trojan, Paris. And I suppose if you'll allow me a sidebar here, folks, if I were to die and find myself condemned to level two of hell, saw that Paris was there, I would ask if I could be transferred to level three, such that I could keep a better and more noble company. But I digress. Eventually, if we head all the way down through hell and you'd have to read the Inferno to get there, well, let's go looking for the person we're interested in. Where has Dante condemned our boy Odysseus? And ladies and gentlemen, there are nine levels. And our boy Odysseus slash Ulysses is all the way down in circle number eight. Right near the freaking bottom of hell itself. And inside of circle number eight, which is elaborately subdivided into sub-circles of hell, you will find our boy Odysseus residing in the section of hell, especially designed and custom-built for individuals referred to by Dante as the fraudulent counselors. And folks... These are people who, according to Dante, are condemned to circle eight of hell for the sin of verbal deceit. And how are they punished? Well, essentially, they have been transformed into flames. And the only thing that they can do is speak. But their tongues, which was the source of their sin in life, well, their tongues are constantly on fire. And Odysseus slash Ulysses is condemned to circle number eight, specifically according to Virgil, the tour guide, for the verbal deceit of creating, implementing, and masterminding the wooden horse. And folks, just a quick little historical reminder. Of course, Dante never, ever, ever had the opportunity to read original Homer. Because Homer was not going to be reborn or renaissanced into Western Europe until the century following Dante's death. So all that Dante did is he took Virgil's hatred and polemic against Odysseus and then essentially cast a pagan Odysseus into a Christian hell. And one of the things that makes the story so absolutely delightfully fun and ironic, I think, is 
that when Virgil, guiding Dante, makes it down to the eighth level and they're looking down on Ulysses barbecuing away there, just a tongue of fire, they actually ask Ulysses slash Odysseus to explain why he is there and why he was condemned to hell. And Ulysses slash Odysseus, even down there in the eighth circle of hell, then says, oh, so you'd really like to know. And our boy Odysseus launches in to an epic story explaining exactly the event that led to his death and got him to hell. Now, folks, the story is going to feel a little bit strange. And that's simply because Dante didn't have access to Homer's original Odyssey. So Dante kind of cobbled together little bits and fragments that he had heard, and then he made a whole heck of a lot of it up. But it sort of goes something like this. Apparently, Ulysses, during his great wanderings, landed on the island of the witch Circe. And following some time with the witch Circe, he made it safely back to Ithaca and was reunited with Penelope and Telemachus. But then, in spite of the fact that he loved his son and he loved his wife, and he had been away from them for a very long time, well, apparently Ulysses decided he was bored and he wanted to set off on another voyage. Now, fortunately for him, inside of Dante's account, many members of his crew were still alive and well from the first voyage. So all he did is he packed up and they headed in a different direction. This time, instead of heading east, they headed west, out past the Pillars of Hercules and onto the Atlantic Ocean. And then Odysseus and his men sailed, boldly exploring where no other hero had gone before, or something like that. Well, eventually they found a huge mountain. The ship came up against it. The mountain was called Mount Purgatory, and Odysseus wanted to reach or climb that mountain. But he could not, of course, because Purgatory is only open to people who have the potential of being saved by the death and resurrection of Christ. And he, Ulysses slash Odysseus, predated that possibility. So as Ulysses attempted to climb Mount Purgatory, well, God barred him from it by sending a whirlpool and a whirlwind and sinking Ulysses and drowning him. And then Ulysses explains to Dante and Virgil, here I am now telling my stories in the eighth circle of hell. And that, well, that, ladies and gentlemen, is Dante's take on Odysseus, a fraudulent counselor sinner who, for the sin of contriving the wooden horse, was damned to an eternity of pain and suffering in the eighth circle of hell. And I know I'm adding my own postmodern contemporary little twist onto this, but I actually think that my boy Odysseus is actually getting the last laugh. Because if in his life he knew that all the world was a stage, even down there in hell, he's still using that world as a stage to tell his stories too. And that brings us all the way, all the way, all the way forward to the year 1842. And folks, in 1842, the Victorian poet... Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote a poem titled Ulysses. And the poem Ulysses is really, really interesting to read 
especially once you're familiar with Virgil and with Dante's take on the character. Because what Tennyson does is he sets the plot of his poem at the precise moment when Odysseus has been back to Ithaca after his first great wanderings adventures, but right before he is considering leaving off on the second great wanderings adventure, which Dante narrated to us inside of the Inferno. And before we go on, a little bit of plot check details. Tennyson is basing his basic plot and the assumptions behind the poem on Dante's version of Ulysses' second voyage, and not upon anything that shows up inside of Homer. And the reason that's important, of course, is that we're listening to Odyssey, the podcast, and I want to assure you right now that Tennyson's poem has provided us with absolutely no plot spoilers for future episodes of Odyssey, the podcast. Tennyson has done some remarkable fictional things with Homer's original story. And so to give you a sense of what's happening inside of Ithaca, according to Tennyson, inside of his version of events, Odysseus has been successfully back home in Ithaca for a few years, and he has managed to restore the kingdom of Ithaca to a state of peace, order, and good government. But as Tennyson's poem opens... Our boy Odysseus is bored, bored out of his freaking gourd. And essentially what Tennyson's poem is, ladies and gentlemen, is a first-person interior monologue where Odysseus essentially talks to himself and muses about what he might do about his boredom and the options that are open to him. Now, this particular literary device, this style of poem, is referred to by the scholars as a dramatic monologue, and Tennyson is considered one of the genre's founders and greatest masters of the form. And the beauty of the dramatic monologue is that essentially we get to listen to the lead character's interior dialogue and then decide for ourselves what we think of what the lead character is thinking. And so, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you some sections of the poem, and then what we can do is we can try to trace what Tennyson has done with the Odysseus character. So I'll begin at the beginning of the poem. And I need you to remember, folks, that the poem's form is such that Odysseus slash Ulysses is speaking out loud to himself, and we are essentially just eavesdropping in on his thoughts. And so, Ulysses has been home for a few years, and he is bored out of his gourd. And he begins to speak out loud, trying to decide how he feels and what he's going to do about those feelings. It little profits that an idle king by this still hearth among these barren crags, matched with an aged wife, I meet and dole unequal laws unto a savage race that hoard and sleep and feed and know not me. Or, translated into more colloquial, less beautiful language, I'm bored. My wife is old and boring, and the Ithacan people are savages that have absolutely no ambition at all except for accumulating wealth, eating, and sleeping. 
And worst of all, none of them even know what an incredibly awesome, heroic, and all-round kick-ass hero I am. And so, ladies and gentlemen, that explains why Odysseus is bored. The answer is that he has done 20 years worth of really cool, interesting, fascinating, fun shit, and he's become addicted to it. And now he's sitting on his ass back at home. Here's how he continues his complaint. I have become a name for always roaming with a hungry heart. Much have I seen and known, cities of men and manners, climates, councils, governments, myself not least, but honored of them all, and drunk delight of battle with my peers far off on the ringing plains of windy Troy. I am a part of all that I have met. Or translated into more modern language, well, yes, everybody's got a hungry heart, but mine is the hungriest of all because I have done the coolest things of all. I've been all over the place. I've been honored by everybody. I've been in some kick-ass battles, and it's all part of who I am now. And as a consequence, well, I'm freaking bored. I simply do not know how to sit down and do nothing. Or as my good friend Alfred Lord Tennyson puts it, how dull it is to pause, to make an end, to rust unburnished, not to shine in use. And here, ladies and gentlemen, is what poetry critics would refer to as the poem's turn. Because this is the moment when Odysseus decides on an answer to how do I keep from keeping myself bored? And the answer he comes up with is rather simple. I know what I'll do. I'll simply resign. I'll hand over the throne to my boring, non-heroic son. And maybe he has the patience to try to hammer some culture and civilization into these cloddish and provincial boors, which I call my Ithacan subjects. It might be just the sort of thing up Telemachus's skill set alley. Or in the words of my friend Alfred Lord Tennyson, This is my son, my own Telemachus, to whom I leave the scepter and the isle, discerning to fulfill this labor by slow prudence to make mild a rugged people, and through soft degrees subdue them to the useful and the good. Most blameless is he, centered in the sphere of common duties. He works his work, I mine. And finally, ladies and gentlemen, our boy Odysseus slash Ulysses settles in on his plan. Or more accurately, I think, he dares to speak out loud what his heart has been urging him to do for the past few years. And the plan is pretty simple, really. What he's going to do is abdicate, abandon the wife he spent 20 years claiming he needed to get back home to, and then bugger off from Ithaca with a bunch of old traveling companions from the good old days on one final and epic nautical adventure. There lies the port. The vessel puffs her sail. There gloom the dark, broad seas. Come, my friends, 
Tis not too late to seek a newer world. Push off, and sitting well in order, smite the sounding furrows. For my purpose holds to sail beyond the sunset and the baths of all the western stars until I die. It may be that the gulfs will wash us down. It may be we will touch the happy isles and see the great Achilles, whom we knew. And though we are not now that strength which in old days moved heaven and earth, that which we are, we are. One equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will. To strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. So folks, what are we to make out of Tennyson's poem? And if anything, what is Tennyson's take on the Odysseus Ulysses character? Well, first of all, it is simply, in my view, a pretty awesome poem all round. I read you about half to two-thirds of it. So let's get back to the big question of whether Tennyson actually offers us a particular take or opinion on the Odysseus character. And I think, well, speaking personally, the answer to this question is that, yes, he offers us a take on the Odysseus Ulysses character, but... Actually, he offers us multiple perspectives and takes, and then as you read the poem, depending on the day, the mood you're in, or the decade of your life that you're in when you read it, well, your take might vary considerably. And all I know is, speaking for myself, I first bumped into this poem back doing an English Lit degree in university, and I had one particular perspective on what I thought about Ulysses then, and now, quite a few years later in my life, I have an entirely different perspective on the very same poem. So, the important thing for us to understand is, in the history of the evolution of the Odysseus-Ulysses character, what Tennyson has done, which is unique from every other author that we've looked at so far, is Tennyson has left it up to the reader to decide. Virgil doesn't leave it up to the reader. Dante doesn't leave it up to the reader. Euripides doesn't leave it up to the reader. Sophocles doesn't leave it up to the reader. They tell us what we should think in emphatic terms about Odysseus. But then we get to Tennyson's poem. And what you think about Odysseus? Well, it's very much going to depend on what you bring to your poetry reading personal party. And I think that makes Tennyson's poems a defining watershed in our sort of quick cook's tour of all different takes on Odysseus. Now, at this stage, I should really stop and take a moment to thank a few people. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I've got all kinds of help from fellow podcasters in developing all of Odyssey the Podcast. But with this particular commentary, I had to send out some emails and pick some people's brains to try to get some help and kind of putting together this massive overview of a lot of material which, well, a lot of people out there in the podcasting world know an awful lot more about than I ever will. So, a lot of my podcasting friends who run their own brilliant productions sent me off an awful lot of help, and I incorporated it into the last hour you've listened to. 
Now, none of them that I'm about to thank have listened to my script or edited it, so if it's full of errors or exclusions or really stupid things, then that's all on me, not on them. And I'm not going to thank them by name. Instead, I'm going to thank them by the title of their podcasts, because really what they love is if you, when you finish listening to Odyssey the podcast, leap over and check out their productions. So, in no specific order, here are some really cool podcasts that you should really someday give a go. The History of Ancient Greece Myth Take The Endless Knot Ancient Greece Declassified and Literature and History. Hours of absolutely awesome podcasting fun. Well worth your time and well worth your patronage. And awkwardly speaking of patronage. Folks, if you have had noble intentions of making a one-time donation to this podcasting project, but somehow have not quite got around to translating your intentions into actions, then this now is a gentle reminder. The road to Hades is paved with good intentions. So, if you want to get off of that road, then now might be the time to head over to odysseythepodcast.com and make your one-time donation. Now, time to say goodbye. And in our next episode, episode 13, we will begin with Odysseus, still disguised as a homeless beggar, meeting his wife Penelope for the very first time in 20 years. And then, as Penelope promised the 108 suitors, we will move on to the big day when she is finally going to choose a new husband to replace her long-lost and presumed dead Odysseus. Ladies and gentlemen, it's going to be an absolute blockbuster of a podcasting episode. So, time for me to say goodbye. Have yourselves awesome days. Thanks for listening, and we will talk again very soon. <laughs>